And ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Here is uh, Pavel from Better World International. And today with me, uh, I have a special guest. Uh, his name is Andrew uh, Weaver. And Andrew, um, basically, this is a pretty cool story about you and uh, what you already have done and accomplished and how you uh, fight about the better world. <clears throat> so that's my pleasure uh, to have you here. And, um, and I definitely have some question uh, for you. Uh, about the climate change and and things like that, so I would like to welcome you uh, here. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's the honor and pleasure is mine. Cool. Okay, uh, Andrew. So um, we know that you are that you are author of two books, uh, Keeping Our Cool and Generation Us, um, which are talking mostly about the climate change and and things like that. So first of all, could you tell me how that happened that you? you uh, get in very interested in the climate change and how, what, what's your story behind that? Well, I actually uh, uh, started off um, doing a, a, in high school, I was good at physics and mathematics and I continued on to um, do a PhD in applied mathematics. And I always wanted to do applied mathematics that was relevant to people. I, in school and in university, I, I didn't hang around a lot with the mathematicians and physicists. I had a lot of friends in the sports that I played in. I played a lot of rugby, et cetera. And I liked to talk about what I was doing. So I wanted to look for an area of physics and maths that was actually relevant to people. And uh, that area was initially in the area of understanding the physics in, uh, of the ocean. And, and then it moved into the physics of the ocean and the atmosphere and their interaction. And that naturally led to the uh, issue of, you know, looking at climate science and the air-sea air interaction. So I got my PhD in 1987 and I started off at McGill in 1989 working on mm -hmm. the, lar the role of the ocean in climate change and climate variability. Mm -hmm. And my real foray into climate science per se at the international level was when I was asked to be part of the uh, United Nations steering group on global climate models. So what it was was a UN group that actually was tasked with assessing our understanding of the ocean components as well as the atmospheric components of these climate models. And I was brought in for ocean model expertise. From there, it just took off. I got involved in the second scientific assessment of the IPCC, the third, the fourth, and the fifth. And I've been involved working in the area for quite some time until, quite, until very recently. Um, could you tell me, because I, I, I know about the UN and uh, we basically can observe them, what what is going on inside? Are those really action that those people taking there are really trying to solving this big big global challenges? Is it and is it really actually solving those problems? Well, there's there's two aspects to that. First off, the the United Nations Committee that I served on was called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, what that was doing is it was tasked with assessing our understanding of the science. The, the impacts and adaptive, adaptive capability, as well as means and ways that we can mitigate climate change. So this every five years or so, this big assessment was put out towards international, that is used uh, and fed towards international policymakers. And there, you know, the scientists, I would argue, have done their job on this problem. If you look at the key scientific metric, that is something called climate sensitivity, which is essentially how much would the world warm if we doubled atmospheric carbon dioxide levels? Okay. Well, the best estimate of that is one and a half to four and a half degrees, and that hasn't changed in more than 35 years. So the science has done well, I would argue, and done a fine job defining the problem. But at the political arena, it's been nothing but a mess. Mm -hmm. So we've had agreement after agreement after agreement for aspirational goals. But what really matters is not aspirational targets, 
but policy. So we have, for example, a collective agreement in Paris last year mm -hmm. saying that the world would try and do what it can to keep warming below two degrees, substantially below two degrees. But then, you know, all the political leaders of the world after signing this and stating that they'll do it, go back to their homes and it's business as usual. Well, what people need to know, of course, is that we've already warmed by one degree. We know that if we do no more than just keep existing levels of carbon dioxide fixed at the values they are, we'll warm by another 0.6 degrees. We know that there's a permafrost carbon feedback, which will add about a 0 0.2 to 0 0.3 degrees. So we know we're already at 1.8 to 1.9 degrees. So what that says is it says to political leaders, if you actually believed what you said, then it makes no sense to continue to invest in multi-generational fossil fuel infrastructure projects because those we know that 80, more than 80% of existing reserves have to stay in the ground. So there's collective cognitive dissonance. Politicians say whatever they want, but they don't have to live the consequences of their decisions because the people who do are the next generation. And therein lies the fundamental problem. Exactly. And I completely agree. And um, uh, Andrew, so what will happen? Um, or maybe, maybe even, maybe, maybe you, let's start from this one. What is the actual problem when the, when the temperature decreases? Could you tell us what's happening? What is the problem? What's happening right now? Well, we, we know that the rate of change of climate today is unparalleled in much longer than the existence of humans on Earth. It's, it's, it's essentially unparalleled in as long as we have records. Mm -hmm. We're essentially taking the atmospheric carbon that was locked into the Earth over tens of millions of years and releasing it on, on the timescale of a few decades. The rate of change of temperature is very dramatic and associated with that are precipitation patterns. So, so too fast, for example, for most ecosystems to be able to adapt. So we're starting to see the demise of coral reef systems. For example, the Great Barrier Reef is on its way out. We're seeing uh, the, the, the sixth greatest extinction event occurring as we speak, where, where, where species extinction is, is increasing. We're putting stress on water availability because we know that the change in precipitation and water availability is such that wet region, regions get wetter and dry regions get drier. So we can get increased likelihood of droughts, for example, in lower latitudes, which puts pressure on people that's access to water, which then put, puts pressure on geopolitical instability. Just take Lake Chad, for example, so surrounded by a number of nations. That lake is on the path towards drying up, and once it's dried up, there'll be issues with water. And, and then, then that sows the seeds for tension. So. When asked to, when I've been asked many times, what are the big reasons why I'm concerned about climate change? And I would say it's twofold. Number one, it's the rate and extent of species extinction. And number two, geopolitical instability that will arise is already arising as a direct consequence of climate change and the inability of some people to live where they used to be able to live. Andrew, why this is happening? Why we have this problem? We know that we know the cause of global warming. We know that one third of the problem has been because of deforestation and the adding of the, that carbon through through slash burning and burning into the atmosphere. And two thirds of it has come from the combustion of fossil fuels. Uh, that is, when we when we combust fossil fuels, we're essentially releasing the carbon that was stored from tens of millions of years ago into the atmosphere immediately. And we know that we've known since the early 1800s that atmospheric carbon dioxide is a very effective greenhouse gas. That is, 
It's essentially uh, transparent to incoming solar radiation, but is quite effective at blocking outgoing long-wave radiation. That is the radiation that the Earth emits to space. And so carbon dioxide acts like a blanket to keep the, the, earth, the earth warm, and we're adding more layers to that blanket, making it warmer and warmer and warmer. Okay, so in case of the fossil fuels, I understand this is everything what we use for our cars. I understand this is all the things that we use for producing plastic, because what I know, the plastic is produced for, from, from fossil fuel, and also probably the energetic uh, energy business or, you know, delivered the energy to our houses. Uh, some of those are, uh, are produced from fossil fuels, and this is everything, would, you know, would causing this. Am I right in case of the fossil fuels? Uh, yes, but except the plastics. Plastic, fossil fuels are indeed used in the formation of plastics. But the good thing about plastics is if you don't burn them, that fossil fuel is still stored. It's not released to the atmosphere. So it's, it is the burning, the combustion of fossil fuels that creates the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it is that that is the problem. Plastics have other problems in terms of pollution. And, and if you burn them in waste energy facilities, but otherwise they're not contributing to global warming. Um, Andrew, I would like to ask you because I know you are involved right now in the in the political uh, stuff as well. So I just I just cannot understand those few things. I remember that was the the scientists start telling people that we have the problem with the with the global warming and with the climate change. And I remember that you know those big discussions when some people were convincing us that the global change is not real, it's not happening, it's a crap, it's a lie, and they provide all those things. I can under I cannot understand why why they did it. You they know, doing this. I I will never try to get into the into the brains of other people and try to figure out why they do what they do. But I will say that we the scientific community has been the, saying the same thing for years and years and years. The world is warming at an alarming rate as a direct consequence of the combustion of fossil fuels. We know that that is what it is causing. There are those who, and, that, and, and so the problem is, is that there are those in our society who believe whatever they believe, and they are, they're, they're, what they do is they end up moving into the realm of what I call decision-based evidence-making, as opposed to evidence-based decision-making. In science, you seek a problem. You see, you see a problem, and you seek the evidence by studying it to explain that problem and try to make a prediction that you can test it in another situation. In, when, in, the, in the process of decision-based evidence-making, you've already made up your mind. So you go around skirting around trying to find some, some information that will back your, your, your uh, view, ideological view, and uh, move on accordingly. So th there's, a, there's a number of reasons. You know, first and foremost is that when you try to bring in new technologies, um, let's take the vehicle, for example. Think about it. The, the car, is, is, is the, the standard gas car, is essentially technology that's over 100 years old. I'm like, really, are we not smarter to, to build things that, other than the internal combustion en engine that has you know, little parts, pistons being uh, powered by explosions moving up and down? We've done that for 100 years. We've put men on the moon. We, we could have put women on the moon, but we didn't. But we put men on the moon since then because J.F. Kennedy said we must. We, we've had cell phones. We've had laptop computers. Human ingenuity has been marvelous, yet we're still driving vehicles powered by explosions, moving pistons that require a lot of maintenance. I would argue that the reason why we're doing that is because attempts to bring in the alternative meet resistance from vested interests. Now, I have an electric car. 
frankly, I don't know why everyone doesn't have one, because it is the most amazing thing to drive. I have no oil and filter change. I have no exhaust system to worry about, no radiator, no water pump. It just runs. And it costs me nothing to run because our electricity, and it's clean because we get our electricity from hydro. So there's the problem. There's, there's, so you start to get people would start to be resistant to, to the, you can imagine with the car coming in, because there is an infrastructure there. There's oil that gets dug out of the ground. It has to be refined and delivered and distributed to gas stations where you go in and you also buy some other stuff, your lottery ticket and maybe a pop and a, a sandwich. And then because it's moving parts, it's got a lot of oil and filter changes. And so there's a whole infrastructure that would have to move away if we move to the electrification of our vehicular center. So there, therein lies the reason why there's often resistance. When you try to bring in new technologies, that meets resistance. And so go back and search their quotes. Climate was cooling, this and that, and see how often they've changed their tune. Then go back and look at the, what the climate scientists have been saying. We've been saying the same thing exactly for more than 20, 30 years. Okay, Andrew, so we were talking about this United Nations. And that was yeah. super interesting a subject for me uh, because I only know about outside world of, of United Nations and I have no idea what's going on there inside. And is it is it really helpful? And you were speaking about agreement after agreement after agreement. Right. We have uh, a very important agreement that was reached in the fall of last year, the so-called Paris Agreement. Now, what leaders committed to at that, essentially every leader in the world committed to at that agreement was to ensure that we keep global temperatures substantively below two degrees. Mm-hmm. So that's a bold target. Then they go back to their countries and they have to implement their voluntary reduction plans to actually get there. And more of the same happens. So we know that unless we take steps now, uh, they're simply uh, not going to reach that target. We know, for example, the world has already warmed by about one degree. We know that if we do no more than keep existing levels of greenhouse gases constant today, we have about another 0.6 degrees warming. 0.6 oh, degrees. Oh, my God. 0.6. Okay. So we know we're at 1.6 degree warming. Now add another 0.2 to 0.3 degrees from a permafrost carbon feedback. And we know that if all we do is keep the present levels of greenhouse gases fixed at just over 400 parts per million, we're going to warm by 1.8 to 1.9 degrees. So that should be a wake-up call for international policymakers. What that means is, is that if you actually truly believe the agreement that you signed in Paris, then that means that we should collectively as a society no longer invest in any new fossil fuel infrastructure anywhere in the world because it is simply incompatible with meeting the two degree target. That is, you know, we need to keep 80% of known fossil fuel reserves in the ground, their stranded assets, and let's move on. So I take Canada, for example, uh, and compare that to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia has access to conventional oil. Canada and the United States have very little conventional oil left. They have access to large quantities of unconventional oil. It's very easy to get conventional oil out of the ground, which is why the Saudis are essentially flooding the market with easy-to-access conventional oil, recognizing, obviously, that if we're going to meet this international agreement, then that unconventional oil will never come to market because of the fact is that we can't bring it there because we're going to break our two-degree target. So, 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 so instead of, you know, the, the problem here is that we collectively are all racing to the bottom to see if we can't um, somehow keep doing what we're doing and pretend that we're going to make the two-degree target rather than 
recognizing the incredible opportunity that is there to transform our energy systems from those that are polluting to those that are not. I, I just want to understand what is the difference between conventional oil and unconventional oil. Like uh, conventional is this, you know, the, the usual petrol, gas, and this is what is accessible by, for everybody? Conventional oil is basically oil that's in the ground. You just need to pump it out of the ground. Unconventional oil is, is oil that, for example, is in shales, so you have to fracture the shale to get it out. Or it's in the bitumous sands in Alberta, so you have to get it out of the bitumous sands. Or it's deep offshore, well down in the deep ocean. So, so that, that's the difference. It's the same with natural gas. Conventional natural gas is basically there in gas form. You just have to pump it out of the ground. Uh, unconventional gas, you have to get it out of shale or you have to uh, you know, take it out of cloth rates or something like that. Okay. So, um, so what those big, actually those big company that was you know, producing fossil fuel, what they, what, they, what they planning to do with all those resources and all those money that they were investing through the years, um, you know, to, 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 to get these fossil fuel uh, resources? Well, I would say that the smart money is actually getting out the cheap stuff now and using the wealth of today to transform themselves to become energy companies of tomorrow. That is to transform from fossil fuel-based company to renewable-based renewable based company. That is what I would argue the smart money does. The, I would say that not smart money uh, doubles down on the continued fossil fuel uh, infrastructure. Look, we are so close globally in terms of trans completely transforming our, our, our transportation sector from gasoline to electric in urban areas it, very, very, very rapidly. The cost to do so is, 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 is very, very minor, and we're, we're getting there. I mean, I drive an electric car. I don't know why anybody in the city I live would drive anything other than an electric car because of the fact it is so easy to drive and cheap to drive, and we, can get, our, we get our electricity here from hydro, so it's renewable energy that, that gets it as well. That's awesome, Andrew, because a lot of people don't, uh, don't believe that the, the shift from the fossil fuel uh, transportation to electric can happen quickly, but it actually can because people, or even the, the countries, they need to implement this agreement when because we're facing the global problem which is global warming right now so uh, am i right with this one it so the, the countries should push to electric cars absolutely if you look in north america 25% of North American greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation, largely the personal automobile. Uh, and where I live in British Columbia, it's more than 30% of our, of, our, of, our, of our emissions. And it is such a low-hanging fruit. When you have a renewable energy and you have uh, storage systems in cars that are batteries, you can actually get non-emitting transportation relatively straightforward and it's not expensive everyone thinks it's expensive it's not expensive I come to my give a specific example of my car I bought a brand new 2015 Nissan Leaf all-in including all taxes for 28,000 Canadian dollars mm -hmm. now that is substantially cheaper than you would actually get um, most gas-powered vehicles in British Columbia oh. and not only that it costs me one cent one and a half cents a kilometer to drive as opposed to 15 cents a kilometer to drive a gas car, the typical gas car. So it's 10 times cheaper to drive. And what that means is in the 10,000 kilometers that I've already done since I've owned this uh, Nissan Leaf, I have essentially saved, it's, uh, you know, uh, $1,000 in terms of cost of gas and uh, who knows, goodness knows how many emissions. And it's more fun to drive anyway. Awesome. 
uh, Andrew, what will happen if the if uh, if the countries and the uh, politician leaders will you know, will not treat it really seriously? What is the threat that is in front of us? When people ask me why should they be concerned about global warming, there's always two reasons that I give. Number one is the rate at which the, the climate is changing makes it not possible for many of our ecosystems to adapt. So large-scale, widespread species extinction is in the cards. You know, we already look to the Great Barrier Reef, for example, and it's, uh, it's, it's basically dying. Half of it's already dead anyway, more than half, actually. Um, and the second reason is geopolitical instability, because one of the most profound effects of global warming is its, is its effect on water. Wet regions get wetter, dry regions get drier. Uh, those regions, if you look around the world, that are typically dry already are stressed socioeconomically, and this sows the seeds for discontent. So geopolitical instability is, um, uh, is another uh, a great um, uh, problem there. And what do I mean by that is you, you have uh, people moving uh, to places that, you know, because they can't live where they are anymore, etc. Like, think about Lake Chad, when that dries up as it will. What, what happens to the people who live around Lake Chad? They want to go somewhere. They didn't cause the problem, yet they're going to have to live the consequences of the problem. And that sows the seeds for, ge seeds for geopolitical instability. On, on, on top of that, um, you, when you uh, add a little bit of, um, you know, I don't, uh, depending on where you are in the world, mm -hmm. there's been a growing trend towards income disparity between the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor. And that is never a stable situation. If we look around human history, going back to as long as we can remember, there are ample examples of civilizations rising and falling, rising and falling. And the same pattern always, you know, always happens. Overextension, uh, disparity between the wealthy and the poor, you know, uh, uh, just sense of entitlement, and then collapse. And that essentially is the path we're on as, as a, as a, as a uh, you know, industrialized species, is that, is that we're on a path, a, a path that will lead to our own internal self-destruction. And, and frankly, I think we're smarter than, um, say, phytoplankton in the ocean, which follow the same path every spring when the nutrients come up and the sun comes out and they blossom and grow and grow until they sap up all the nutrients and collapse. So people are smarter than that. So rather than following the path of the of the Mayans or the, the path of the Aztecs or the path of the Incas or, or the path of phytoplankton in the ocean ocean, I would have thought that today we would think realize that we don't we don't need to have this happen. We need we're smarter than that. Okay. Andrew, do you think something really dramatic needs to happen so people really start to understand this is the all of us problem or uh, do you think we can we can um, implement the very big bold changes without before anything dramatic will happen well, well there's a lot dramatic going to happen anyway regardless of what we do because of the, the the kind of warming in store because of our past behavior however um there are very very simple solutions out there the most simple solution that exists is putting a price on carbon right now It is in every person, in every household, in every municipality, in every city, in every province, in every country, in the world's best interest to do absolutely nothing about global warming because the costs of action are borne by that individual and the costs of inaction are distributed amongst 8 billion people in the next generation. It's kind of the mother of all tragedies of the commons. 
So the, the way one deals with that using our existing socioeconomic systems is to recognize that the atmosphere cannot be regarded as an unregulated trash can with which we can put anything we want into it and there is a cost associated with using it as a trash can. And that means pricing emissions. I'll give you a, um, I mean, the analogy I, I think is quite a good one. Let's suppose that, um, you know, that uh, I'm a neighbor living next door to you and I have a lot of garbage. And what I do is every day I throw my garbage over the fence into your backyard. I keep doing that, I keep doing that, I keep doing that. Eventually, you know, you're not going to be able to live there and you do one of three things. Mm -hmm. You can quietly die where you live and that's probably not an option. You might move away from where you live in the hope that you might go find somewhere else to live or you might fight back uh, against the person who's actually creating the problem for you. Mm -hmm. And my response to you might be to hire some bodyguards or I could actually have thought all along, maybe it would have been better if I didn't throw my trash over your, um, your, 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 um, your fence and I actually paid a little bit to, to deal with it. Now, why I say that is, is, is the, 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 the analogy is that the problem, this historic problem has been caused by the developing world, yet the ramifications of global warming disproportionately affect this, uh, the developing world. Sorry, the problem is caused by the developed world. The ramifications are disproportionately affecting the de developing world who haven't caused the problem in the first place. And, and that sows the seed of, of dis for discontent, which is, uh, you know, the, the seeds of global um, geopolitical uncertainty. Pricing emissions, meaning putting a cost on using the atmosphere as an unregulated trash can for carbon, would be the biggest incentive we could actually do to transform our energy systems and solutions would come to the surface rapidly. That's the solution. A global price on carbon that is agreed to with world trade organizations and other free trade agreements allowing jurisdictions to impose carbon tariffs on imports from those jurisdictions that go rogue and don't abide by internal uh, pricing on carbon. That is the solution. But how, is, how, how people can measure that? Like, for example, I imagine the carbon is also like this, all the people are burning, like, uh, because they're using the fossil fuel to, for example, warm their houses. Right? Very easy. To, it's very, very easy to, 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 uh, to, to measure that. G let me tell you, companies know exactly how much oil they pull out of the ground. They know exactly how much coal they dig up. They know exactly how much gas they get out of the ground. You put the price, when, when it's there, when you pull it out of the ground, you can put the price on it right there because there's an assumption. If you pull it out of the ground, it's going to be combusted. Awesome. So you can put a price right there or you can put it at the consumer, at the, at, at the other place, which is where you buy it. So, so it's very, fossil fuel reserves are really well known. Um, so there's no problem there uh, in terms of figuring that out. You know, it gets a little more subtle in terms of, of perhaps uh, emissions from landfills, um, but, but even those can be measured as well. Okay. Andrew, so um, the very important things I want to I wanna talk with you, it's exactly like, for example, you know about UN Global Goals, right? Yeah. And so, what, for example, what, from my perspective uh, and uh, many friends of mine who want to change the world, what we see the, when we're going to the Global Goals, we, get, we got so excited about those goals and yeah. after that we get to those and we actually find out that there's nothing and not much we can do actually be, be like in, uh, besides you know keeping design or i support this one or i don't uh, so my question is like what the normal people everyday people could do right now to there are th mm -hmm. that's a great question 
And I've been asked that many times. And I always say that there are three things mm -hmm. that a person can do right now. Three things. Mm -hmm. Number one, every single one of us has a wallet and we spend our money. We actually can send a signal to the market in terms of what we value by how we spend our money. Mm -hmm. I'll give an example in North America. In North America, we never used to have organic food sections in grocery stores. People would have thought you were crazy if you, if you had an organic food section in your grocery store. Slowly but surely, people were willing, people paid, you know, started demanding it. They were willing to pay a little bit more for it, especially those early adopters. And now it's such, a, it's such that every single grocery store has an organic section in it because they know they can't com compete without. And the price is, in many cases, it's actually less than, 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 than yeah, non-organic well, food. Well, that's so, so, so that's one example of where using your wallet can change behavior. The electric vehicle is, you know, if you start to buy electric vehicles, that it sends a signal to the companies that you want them, and on they come. It's the same thing with, you know, uh, uh, it, it's throughout our society that's, that, that, that works. Number two, the second thing you can do, is in every democratic state, we have the ability to vote. That is, we have the ability to go and put an X on the box for somebody we want. If society believes this is an issue that needs to be dealt with, they need to put it front and center mm -hmm. in terms of how they vote. I would argue, particularly the youth, because the youth of today, depending on the country you're in, are not as prone to come out and vote as, say, elderly people. This issue is largely one that is created by my generation who, and will manifest itself on the next generation. Mm -hmm. Youth should get out and vote en masse and get out and vote for people who will make the, dealing with this a priority. And the third thing you can do is education. Each and every one of us knows other people, and we can convince other people to use their wallet the way they, we do and to vote according to put this as an issue. For example, kids can often get their grandparents to vote for them. Mm -hmm. uh, much more difficult to get your parents to vote for, for the way you want. But your grandparents, yeah, they'll do that because they, they, grandparents kind of love look, doing what, what their grandchildren, um, they love pleasing their grandchildren. So you can actually bring your grandparents to the poll, for example. So those three things, those three things combined with carbon pricing, and the, I would argue this, this problem is dealt with. Sure, Andrew. So, for example, but in case of the, the wallet, so uh, we can uh, start choosing electric vehicles. What else and what we can start choosing by our wallet? Well, well, goods that are produced locally. Like I, when I go to the grocery store, I don't buy produce that comes from anywhere uh, other than close by my home. Why would I want to, to, to buy apples from New Zealand when there's perfectly good apples grown in British Columbia? Uh, New Zealand apples are, have to travel all that great distance in, in boats that are burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, packaging, processed food, things that require energy, buy things that require less energy to make. When I look at, um, you know, in, in my house, energy use, lighting, for example, or insulation, or when I look at um, um, clothing, I look at least, uh, stuff that's produced more locally. Again, when I look at, uh, you know, purchasing a, 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 a washing machine. We all need washing machines. I look for the efficient one. I look for one that actually is, maybe it's a little more, but it's a little more efficient. 
these are the type of things. My, my lawnmower, I don't have a two-stroke lawnmower. I have a lawnmower to cut my lawn that's electric, battery-powered electric. So most of my, uh, my appliances are out, my outdoor, my, my weed eater is electric. It is not sure. gas-powered. So there's, there is so much you can do. Sure. Um, you know, and it's fun and exciting to do that because you're always thinking about how you can be innovative. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm going to go even farther. Like, uh, let's say, what is this one, the most important action? Like, what we sh is it that this stops the fossil fuel or transfer to electric? Is it this one action? Is it this one? Is it this which have the biggest impact? Or this one action or this one change would actually have the biggest impact of all, all of those. For the individual or society as a whole? Uh, for society and individual. Putting, for society, it's putting a price on carbon. That, okay. that, that is the single biggest issue. Without that, we're not going to deal with this problem. It is a necessary condition to deal with global warming, is to have a global price on carbon emissions. The second thing, from an individual's perspective, mm -hmm. most of our, and it depends on where you are, where you live, in North America, Mm -hmm. The single most important thing a person can do is recognize that 25% of our global of our emissions in North America are from the transportation sector. It's either taking public transit, riding a bike, walking, or using an electric vehicle. Okay. In, 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 in Europe, um, depending on where you are, in Poland, for example, mm -hmm. I suspect you get a lot of power from coal. One of the things that you can do, uh, what would do, would be to you know, move off coal in the short term to natural gas and in the long term to renewables. This is, these are the kind of big, the low-hanging fruit that uh, have, have co-benefits associated with them as well. Sure, Andrew. So what I understand, I just want to sum up uh, this. What I understand, the, the biggest problem right now is fossil fuel. Correct. And we need to stop using this or stop polluting by using the fossil fuel or we need to move to electric. And both actions will be stopping that or not using some things that require fossil fuel or getting to electric. This is the action that we want that actually might solve the, 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 what the individuals could do as well right now. Exactly. And we need the government can show leadership in putting a price on emissions because we need that leadership to actually stimulate the market in the right direction as well. To, to ensure that we put a price on using the atmosphere as an unregulated dumping ground. Okay, Andrew, so imagine right now you have uh, um, 100,000 people and they yeah. are ready for doing this. Probably you know the power, the power of collective goal, like how the, if the people have very concrete goal that do this action and it's contribute to this one, how do you think, what, would, what you would tell those 100,000 people to do? Like one action. Well, I, I tell those 100,000 people the same thing that I said to every single person who's asked me what they could do. There are three things they can do, not one thing. That's simplifying it. Number one is use their wallets to drive okay. the market in the direction they want. Number two is get out and vote and ensure that people actually vote for, uh, put, put this as, a, as an issue when you vote for them. And number three, education. Get others to do the same. Okay. Okay, uh, Andrew, what, what if I would say something like this? Let's get 100,000 people to get a solar panel and they contribute to the goal only when they're getting the solar panel. What do you think about this? Um, you know, good for them, but may, that, might, th that might not be the most cost-effective way for, for them to reduce emissions. In my case, in British Columbia, the most cost-effective way for me, me to reduce emissions is to buy an electric car. If I'm, in, if I'm in Poland and I get a lot of my electricity from coal, perhaps the uh, most cost-effective way is to put a solar installation on my roof. If I'm living in, in, in uh, the UK, 
where perhaps a lot of my, my heating is coming from natural gas, perhaps the most cost-effective way would be to in, in, in improve the insulation in my building. I understand. You know, it, depends on, it depends on where you are, and that's sure. why I don't think you can have blanket statements for one and all. I understand. Okay, sure. I'm, I'm just exploring and looking for it. So let's imagine that the most of our listeners are people from 24 to 30 years old. Uh, yeah. And now uh, they want to do something. And what we can do... We can, you know, get 100,000 people to, for example, send a petition somewhere. We can, for yeah. example, so we, we, cannot, we cannot afford for electric car. We cannot afford yet for um, some expensive stuff. But what we could do, for example, or what do we think we could do? There is the solar panels, for example, for 10 bucks and yeah. uh, you, you can charge the phone. And I understand it's not solving the problem, but my question is, You know, imagine that people starting to getting with those little solar panels and they carrying with them and, and everybody is asking why they communicate this is important. And uh, so do you think it might be a good idea for spreading, start spreading awareness and, and things like that? Sure. But I mean, I think if you're talking about young people, yes. young people typically don't have as much money, uh, disposable income. I think, you know, if you tell those 100,000 young people to go and talk to their grandparents and get them to spend uh, $10,000 putting a solar installation on their roof, they probably have a much greater impact and, uh, and, and they have more disposable income. Young people, I would argue, are not the problem. Uh, the problem is the generation, my generation, that are intransient in terms of changing our ways. So, so I, I would suggest that young people use their power of persuasion through um, communication, through voting, which they don't do, to get my generation to get out of the way and move towards transitioning fossil fuels. Because the young people are going to inherit the problem, yet they're not part of our decision-making process today. Okay, so we can, we can convince our parents and grandparents to, do, uh, to go to stop using the fossil fuel, to stop um, burning, you know, using the fossil fuel to heat our houses, get electric cars, get a roof, solar installation, and uh, start uh, buying locally. And, uh, and we can start also educating other people, like our parents, friends, and other, other um, people around us. Is, it, is, that, yeah. is that right? Perfect. Perfect. Okay, what about, can we do something, this last question, Andrew, I know you, you, you need to go. Uh, can we do something to influence a government to put this uh, carbon uh, tax? Let, let's say if 100,000 people will send uh, 100,000 letters to the uh, Canadian or American government, do you think it will make any difference or not? Yes, it will make a huge difference because the people who are... Who, who the governments are listening to are their donors. They're the big corporations. They're not the little, the little people who, who, who they're actually supposed to be representing. So when people who are actually right to their governments, they begin to respond and listen. That is critical because governments are there and elected by the people for the people. Many politicians get really, really worrying if they start to recognize that their constituents who voted them in are saying do something that their government's not doing. They start to speak within and to try to drive that direction. So yes, I would encourage everyone to write, email their elected local rep representatives to make this an issue. To the local representative, or for example, that, let's say if if I if my if government here in Poland is in in capital city, should I, should they send a letter there, or you know, because it it might be interesting. You are not the first person saying that might actually work, and we have that power. 
to because what I also know that sending the one petition with 100,000 signs doesn't work that well no. if 100,000 uh, uh, like a separate letters is that 100,000 right? separate letters particularly if they're handwritten and not email chain letters has an influence what we what what is effect what is done very often here in BC and is effective is that we have a parliamentary system whereby we have a local representative and we have a, a, you know a, a, a cabinet so uh, if let's suppose somebody in Oak Bay where I represent has an issue they'd send me a letter and they'd send a letter to the premier and they send a letter to the minister responsible for the actual portfolio so there'd be three letters that went out so but you want to ensure that your representation representative in the government um, is also aware of the issue because ultimately they you were they were elected by you I, I've got to split but that was a, it's a wonderful interview thank you very much yeah thank you very much Andrew great to great to have you here and uh, hopefully um, speak to you soon yes thanks Pavel talk thank later bye-bye bye-bye